as St Bridget's Day on the radio. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. My mother told me that she was forced to cut the grass with scissors uh, when she broke rules. Like we have have one woman, um, Mary Linsky, and she's living in a house with her husband and and three sons. And when the child protection agents go in, they realise that the pipes have burst, have completely flooded the house. But because it's winter, the the water has frozen. They've got um, one knife and one fork in a family of five and three dishes. The only thing they didn't ask me was, and what did I get when I was making the Holy Communion? And he didn't ask me that question. That was the only question he left out. And how much much did you get in your holy? I don't know. My man took her off me. (laughs) First day of Celtic Spring, St. Bridget's Day. Here's Gavin Jennings on Morning Ireland. And it's the 1st of February. It's the first day of the Celtic Spring, the ancient Celtic festival of Imbolg and St. Bridget's Day. Next Monday, we'll see the very first public holiday in her name. As we mark St. Bridget's Day, we'll look back at some of the traditions associated with the feast including the hanging out of a piece of fabric to use for cures. The, the, the eve of St. Bridget's. You hang out a rag. You hang out, hang out a rag. Or your clothesline. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. then St. Bridget's supposed to fly over and bless the uh, rag, the cloth, we'll say. And actually, we still do that. I would never, ever, I always put out a ribbon. And you keep it for a year. I'd always give, um, pass around, you know, the first milk, the beasts they used to call yeah. The cow, after the cow calf and they boil it in a pot yeah. and give a big jug of it to each neighbour. Yeah. It was beautiful. Oh, they were doing that till very recently. <clears throat> well, the people who lived next door to us on Gleave Street, they kept a cow out the back. I don't, the cow was grazed by grace and favour up the street in another man's land. Mm. And that cow would be brought down and brought into the house. And there was a lot of little houses on our street that hadn't a lot of money to spare, so they wouldn't have a quart of milk no. bought from the milkman. But they might take a cup or a small jug <coughs> and they'd say, run down and get a drop of milk in so-and-so's house. Well, if you died for that some milk, you had to wait until the cow was milked and the can of milk brought in and three teaspoonfuls of holy water put in it. Laura Hogan's report for Morning Ireland. Then on the Ryan Tuberty show, Elaine Farrell and Leanne McCormick were in studio to talk about the murkier side to the history of Irish women and emigration and their book, Bad Bridget. Leanne explained how it came about. Well, we uh, have been working on the Bad Bridget project for, uh, well, nearly 10 years now. Um, uh, Elaine and I had both separately, unbeknownst to each other, been working looking at uh, Irish women in Boston and New York. And previously we'd worked on Irish women on the island of Ireland. Mm -hmm. And we were really interested to know what was happening to these women when they went to North America. We knew they were committing crimes and getting up to all sorts in Ireland. So what was happening when they went to America? And we got together, we decided there's a bigger project here. um, And we came up with with the Bad Bridget project. Great. Now... Now we're off. Okay, we, we, uh, and what I love about uh, the, the book and the project is that, uh, as I said just a little bit before the break, history uh, of any hue is written by men for the most part. Mm-hmm. And we lose sight of these stories. You've reached into the shadows. You've reached into the bottom decks of the boats. You've gone into the murky corners of the prisons all around 19th century New York and Mulberry Street and beyond. And you found them. So how do you go about doing that? And and what we, what was your... Your uh, raison d'etre for it. What, what were you hoping to achieve? Well, we're building on kind of decades of, of research on Irish women's um, history. And that has been done before us. And, and 
you know, kind of building on, on what has been done about Ireland. Um, and what we really wanted to do was get into those records. Yeah. Um, we knew that the Irish women were there. And so what we ended up doing was trawling through archives and libraries um, in the US looking for prison registers, um, looking at court records, looking at newspapers, and we'd find a little fragment. Yeah. So a, a woman's name, maybe her crime, and we'd have to try to trace her through other records, seeing what we could find. And sometimes it would be a dead end. And some of our women have common names and we can't say for sure that this is the same woman that we're finding in, in um, different records. And then other women, we see just a small reference um, in a prison register. And when we go looking, we find an amazing story. And yeah. we find these historical records that give us a real insight into what their day, what their lives were You're like. You're into that you find the tapestry, you know, you find the thread that becomes yes, the piece exactly. of material that becomes the whole piece of tapestry. You go, oh my yeah. God, we've now reconstructed a whole per, a whole life yeah. story. I mean, yeah, exactly. how it's, fascinating it, that must be. It's not just about the crime. It's yeah. actually about the domestic life. It's about the motivations for emigration. It's yeah. about relationships. Let's talk about why uh, Irish people, but I'm going to focus on women today because that's really what we're talking about. Why did Irish women and girls, I was struck by that, the youth of them, why yes. were they getting on boats to go to, if in this case, the United States at this time? Most common reason. Again, often it's it's poverty, it's economics. Mm. Um, so we we our sort of starting point was eighteen thirty eight, just before the the peak of emigration, really in the the years of the Great Famine and, and following that. Yes. So you see, women and girls were often those who were who were sent to try and make money and to send money back home. And and Ireland's very different in terms of emigration compared to other European countries, where often women would travel as part of a family group. So you'd see it as daughters and wives all going together with with men. Mm-hmm. And Ireland's very different where women are travelling on their own and often very young. You know, our youngest that we see was about seven. Seven, yeah. Um, so travelling on, on their own. On their yeah. own. Oh, um, you know, and maybe going to having an address or having a contact or somebody to meet when they get there. But so often when they got there, those people had moved, people, you know, moved around very much. There was no kind of, you weren't able to text your address or your change of address. So often, you know, people had moved and they didn't know by the time they got there. So it's generally for those reasons about trying to make money and send money back home. And the idea of chain migration, you know, with women as well was, was really common about daughters and and aunts going out sending money back home and and girls and women coming out again but that meant that Irish women were often arriving without those support networks they weren't in a family group they were on their own and that made them vulnerable and Ryan spoke about the culture shock experienced by some of these young emigrants I remember being in in Ellis Island once as a tourist a few number of years ago and thinking imagine landing here you know in New York from as you point out in your book not the cities of Ireland, from the villages. Like you've just come from like the parish pump, the priest, you know, <laughs> yeah, the tiny yeah. school and, and a donkey. And now you're in mm-hmm. 90, late 19th century or there about mid 19th century New York City with, with like the, 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 with the Tower of Babel of, of voices and sounds mm-hmm. and smells and cultures. What do you do as a seven to mm-hmm. 25 year old young woman landing in, in outer space essentially? 
I mean, it must have been such a sensory <laughs> Could shock. Could you imagine? Yeah, and and even you know we have have records where where the Irish girls and women are talking about the you know the climate. They're not used to these hot summers, <laughs> the really really cold winters, and that takes its toll. Like yeah. if these are girls and women who have landed with very little money in their pockets, they need to try to get a job straight away. But who are their contacts? They might know people there, but those people might be so poor they're not actually able to to help them mm-hmm. um, in any way. So so it must have been a complete um, shock for them. And when we're looking at, at these records, we're looking at um, some child protection agency records because they're going in looking at what the conditions are that the children are living in. And it's through those records then we're able to see the sheer poverty mm-hmm. that these families are living in. Like we have, have one woman, um, Mary Linsky, and she's living in a house with her husband and, and three sons. And when the child protection agents go in, they realise that the pipes have burst, have completely flooded the house. But because it's winter, the it, the, I, the water has frozen. So the stairs are covered in ice. There's no doors in the tenements. They've got no furniture. All they've got, the only furniture they have in the house is a cot and they've got a bed. They've got um, one knife and one fork between a fa- in a family of five and three dishes and the clothes that's on their backs. And you just think like, this is the, this is the reality. Like this is the poverty that these Irish people were living in. Um, and that's probably not what they imagined when they were leaving Ireland. You know, you reminded me of a, a tour I did in, in New York of the, the Tenement Museum. Have you been mm-hmm. to it in, in, yeah. in the, the, I don't know what part of it is, Soho or something. I'm not, uh, yeah, it's down. East, east side. East somewhere, side. Yeah, you have yeah. it in one. Um, and that is so evocative because thankfully they've kept it, a building intact and, you know, the Italians mm-hmm. and the Irish were coming in and you really got a sense of, the teeming masses, didn't you? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I'm, I'm just thinking about one of our, our cases, Marion Canning, who lived on, on Mulberry Street. Yes, yeah, that's and that's yeah, and she, you know that by that by the time she was living there, it had become that part of Little Italy. Mm. But you're, you, you know, they describe about how in the, the tenement building that she's in, uh, the this, this previous census had recorded there were over seventy people living in that one you know, that one block, that one tenement house rather. And that, you know, there was a there was a, a bar, a saloon in the ground floor. You know, there was probably, a, it was a brothel as well. You mm. know, so there's, it's all of this sort of noise and voices. And most of those people would have been Italians as well. So you're thinking, here's this girl from, you know, rural Ireland in the middle of all of this. It's it's all happening and the noise and the, the streets. When you see those pictures of somewhere like Mulberry Street as well, yeah. you just get the the whole feeling of that constant mass of people and 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 languages and, and all sorts of things as well. Yeah, so it must have been a shock. It's like Dickens does New York. Yeah. You yeah. know, it, you got that sense of these narrow streets and, and mm-hmm. smoky and impoverished. And, and the women in your book, or the girls, if you want to call them that, for some of them were, were surely that, uh, it, it just seemed to gravitate, rightly or wrongly, or for, for, for another, beyond their control, to uh, sex work, um, domestic serv- servitude uh, as well as service. I mean, I think it's probably a, a nuance in that. Um, uh, and uh, prison spells. I mean, this was not uh, the land of milk and honey. For, so for many of the Irish immigrants, they, they were what we might term, okay, successful mm-hmm. in that they were earning money um, through um, say they're working domestic service or they got factory work but we're looking at the the other side um, and kind of hoping to to show the the kind of wider narrative um, of this Irish emigration um, story. So why is the book called Bad Bridget? Uh, let's talk about uh, the idea of the name uh, Bridget because you call it Brad Bridget but really Bridget is a bit like what Paddy used to be, isn't it? It's the male, it's the female equivalent of yeah. Paddy, the Paddy Irishman. Yeah, and, and that was sort of why we chose the name Bridget as well. And because 
it comes up so often, particularly in North America, the, the term Bridget or Biddy and used in that derogatory way, often to apply to all Irish women. So yeah. you, you see people often talking about their servants as as Biddy and Bridget, even though that's not their name. Mm. You know, that's just the, the term that was given. And you see the kind of the images that appear all over North American newspapers of, um, you know, stupid biddy she's ignorant she's she's just you know come from the bogs and she doesn't know how to to manage in these north american um houses there's one cartoon that always sort of sticks in my mind it's off you see the table family sitting around a table and and bridget there in her slip and she's holding a bowl of tomatoes and the caption says this is not what we meant when we said that we wanted the tomatoes undressed and you know it's that sort of she doesn't know how to manage in a house she's an idiot and and for us it was about sort of reclaiming the name as well yeah. and about saying, hang on, this is about a, a, a wider experience and all of the factors that that come into play about what what made Bridget end up in Fascinating, the places it, she ended up. We're so used to the, the idea of the Irish as a sort of a simian, you know, um, subclass mm-hmm. from the Punch magazines yeah. in the time of the of this kind of similar era. Uh, and it's so good that you you guys have brought to life uh, or to to the light the idea that there is a female equivalent of that, albeit in New York, as just this this idiot uh, woman who's no use and a bit thick because she's from because she's from Ireland. Let's face it. Um, and this isn't, isn't it great? It, it took us uh, it took you a lot. Of, it took us <laughs> a long time to come around to to discovering it, but it just sheds a light that's that's so uh, important, as you know. Let's talk about. Um, the jails and the 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 amount of Irish women that spent time in American jails. Tell us about your, what you found there and, and why were they there. I mean, we were completely overwhelmed. Really? Yeah, we we knew we were going to find Irish women because we had found them in Ireland and we were expecting they're going to be there. But when we looked at these prison registers, you know, in, in one instance in the 1860s, we have 86 percent of one single prison is made up of Irish women. They're totally outnumbering every single other nationality, including the native-born American women combined. Okay. Um, so, so it's staggering. So, for us, you know, we were hoping we'd go in there and we'd get the names of every single Irish woman who committed a crime. But it was just so incredibly overwhelming seeing all those figures. And I suppose for us, then we're trying to piece together the stories of these these names that we're seeing, or trying to to see what the background is to all of these figures. Uh, did Did you get a, a, a kind of common thread as to why they were there or was it totally case by case disparate reasons? For a lot of these women they're in for crime for drunkenness or crimes related to drunkenness um, and they're in for petty theft yeah. um, and we, of course we have then women at, at other extremes who are in for you know we've got kidnapping we've got manslaughter we've got murder um, in there as well so there's a wide variety of crime but, but the vast majority are in for drunkenness and it kind of seems to be um, a stereotype that's nearly self-perpetuating. A drunken a, Irish. Here we a go woman, again. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And she appears in court and there, she's been charged with drunkenness and because of the stereotype of the mm. Irish drinking, mm. the assumption is, oh, she must be guilty. And if she has a criminal record already, next time she comes into court, they'll just send her down again. There she goes again. I mean, we had uh, the author, Tom Thomas uh, Keneally, in yesterday uh, talking about, obviously, about Schindler's Ark and Schindler's List. But he also talked about the Irish emigrant experience and... Uh, going to Australia and what have you and he linked the famine with our drink problem um, uh, in the sense that 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 sense of national trauma and the the, the desire to seek um, oblivion through alcohol and I suspect when you think of the era we're talking about that's next door to the famine 
And a lot of these women and girls may have seen things and yeah. been in positions that they couldn't forget and desperately wanted to and found it uh, oblivion at the end of a bottle. I mean, there's something in that too, I suspect. Yeah, absolutely. And even some of the, um, when they're coming into the prisons, they will say the reason why they turned towards drink and it'll be a, the death of a child. It'll right. be the breakdown of a relationship. Um, but we also have women who nearly play up the stereotype of the drunken oh, Irish. Okay. We have one woman from Toronto, um, Eleanor David, and she talks about how, um, you know, she's drunkenly singing in front of um, a concert hall and it takes four policemen four policemen to drag her away, take her to prison. And when she comes before the courts, then she says, you know, as long as there's a drop of Irish blood in my body, I am going to drink and I'm not going to stop until the sods of the valley cover me. You know, she's really playing up that idea of the the drunken Irish um, in court. Bad Bridget is the name of the book. Leanne McCormick and Elaine Farrell from The Ryan Tuberty Show. Now, did you know that there are 36,000 of our citizens in Ireland over the age of 90? So in the afternoon on the live line, 99-year-old Charlie O'Leary, former kit man for the Irish International Soccer Squad, was talking to Joe about bureaucracy, Italian 90 and meeting the Pope. And it happened to be Charlie's birthday. Charlie, happy birthday. Thank you very much indeed, Joe. Thank you. You sound fantastic, Charlie. Yeah. You sound fantastic. Hope Lovely, the, I hope the line says. Now, I was just I was telling because uh, we were talking about something else before he came on there, Charlie, about the fact that one you're having difficulty with your eyesight. That's right. Okay, and how how difficult is that for you, Charlie, at the moment? Well, well no, slightly impaired. I have a, I go six six uh, every six weeks. I go to the eye and ear to have injection of the right eye. Oh yeah. And also yeah. the left eye then. Is a, a the central vision is nearly gone in, in the in the left eye. Okay. So uh, I difficulty reading and uh, uh, for instance uh, identifying faces. If, if I met you, for instance, well, okay. we all every knows Joe Duffy, but yeah. I speak. If I met an individual out and I met him an hour afterwards, hardly recognise him. I understand. The features don't uh, come to be, and uh, that difficulty, like. And Charlie, how often do you go for the injections? Every six weeks. My mother used to go for that. She yeah. used to, she used to dread them for the macular yeah. degeneration. Yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And how do you manage them? Uh, well, I, I, I got I, uh, one of the young ladies there was very kind to me. Yeah, the And she yeah. said to me, "Look, relax. Yeah. And as you feel the needle coming towards you, inhale and then exhale. And I found this was, I found it very, very more than helpful, honestly. And uh, I, I'm not being boastful, around, but sometimes yeah. I don't even feel it, to be honest. Good man. Because people, people would dread getting a needle exactly, yeah, into yeah, their yeah. eye. Right? It's a fear. Like the and, fear yeah. and how are you afterwards? Well, uh, but, uh, I have to be very careful. For instance, I, 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 I use a shade of glass coming home, yeah, right. a pair of glasses coming home, and I try and avoid for the couple of hours, maybe the rest of the day, I don't read or look at television. And... Uh, and then the next day, I feel marvellous, like, you know. Oh, you're brilliant. You're absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Now, you said you saw a form the other day at 99 years of age. Yeah. You got to receive forms to fill yeah. in. Yeah. Do you know what, what were the forms for? for... Well, I'll tell you quite clearly I, what happens. Uh, a couple of years ago, in the old Whitworth Hospital, the National Council of the Blind, they have a marvellous office there. Yeah. And anything to do to help the blind... They've all sorts of little instruments you can buy, okay, like uh, yeah. speaking clocks and all of this. Brilliant, brilliant. And, and stuff for telling the, the, 
if the boiling water is, is, is coming up over the cup. All different things to help you. Mm-hmm. And I go there pretty often. But many, quite a few years ago, I went, and this young lady asked me, did I ever do a night test there? And okay. she put me under a night test, and she said, you know you're entitled to, uh, yeah. to, to uh, a pension. A blind a small pension. pension. Yeah, yeah. And I said, well, I didn't know that. Yeah. So she gave me all the particulars, and I followed it. And since then, I've been getting 67, uh, 67 euros a week. That's brilliant. You see, yeah. I guess. But then, uh, the, other, the other day, I got a letter. Uh, now, I'm talking about more than one, a, a big lengthy thing. Okay. A big envelope. With, and quite clearly across the top, it's means test. Oh, for God's sake. Means test for, 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 for my uh, pension. And it had to be filled in against the 12th of February. Now, my birthday's on the 1st of February, right. and it has to be in again the 12th of February. So I don't know whether I'm going to get no pension or a decrease after my birthday or not. I have to wait on the results of, the, of what I filled in. But hang now, on. Now, you... I'm speaking about some of the questions you're asked. Okay. As nothing, for instance, the only thing they didn't ask me was, and what did I get when I was make me Holy Communion? And, and he didn't ask me that question. That was <laughs> the only question he left out. So you're telling me, on the one hand, the National Council for the Blind, and they are the ones, they said, they did a, 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 yes. a sight test. They said, Charlie, do you know you are legally blind? You are, you will come, you're eligible for this pension. Yes. Uh, yeah. Of, well, in your case, 60 quid a week. Yeah. And at 99 years of age, yeah. they asked, and it's, it's irrelevant who you are, because I, yeah. I know you never, you, you're, you're uh, modest at the best of times, but it's irrelevant who you are. But they asked the great Charlie O'Leary at 99 years of age to do a means test to see yeah. could he get a blind pension. Mother yeah. of God. Yeah. Mother of merciful yeah. error. And how long will it take you to fill in that form? Well, you, my, my daughter, my daughter has to fill you it in. You might be 100, Charlie. Exactly, but she filled it anyway. And, uh, oh, okay. and uh, I, I have to say, to her credit, it, 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 it took some doing, like, to trying to answer. Because some of the questions seem to be irrelevant to, uh, to, to the fact that I was blind. And it was a long conversation, but Joe asked Charlie about meeting the Pope. And so, and you met the Pope? Well, yeah. Well, well remind our younger listeners about that, because well, that was a... Because well, what did the Pope call you at one stage or say to you? Didn't he come over to you? Yeah, what happened was this. We were in the big auditorium, and yeah. we were inside the altar rails, and the team were all dressed hard, beautiful, there. Okay. lovely track suits on them. Yeah. And, uh, Thanks to you. Uh, I'm in the front row, okay. standing on a step, and Jack Charlton had his arms on, on my shoulder. Right. And uh, just as the Pope was nearly on top of me, didn't the president of the FAA at the time, Lord, has to be dead now, and the doctor came and stood right in front of me. Okay. And, and that meant the Pope didn't see me. All right. But Jack then put his <laughs> arm out, tapped the two of them on the shoulder, and as he turned around, he pushed them aside. Good lad. And pushed me forward. And I stumbled a bit, and I think the Pope thought I was falling, and he put his arm to stop me. <laughs> and that's how he had his arm around me. So you're, you're one of the many people, Charlie, that was saved by the Pope. Well, not alone that. And, and, and Joe, <laughs> I say this, I say this, that I, I can boast, for instance, the Pope, the Pope had his arm around me, and now he's a saint, and he's his arm around me. So, Joe, if, if anyone wants to come around the put their arm around, <laughs> they do, but it'll cost them a few bob. Of course they will. They'll go straight to heaven. And Charlie explained how he became part of the squad. 
Well, I was a, re- a soccer referee for fifty for twenty years. I was on the League of Ireland panel. Okay. And then I refereed. I actually ran the line for the Legion Ireland match with Jack Charlton played. Go and away. then I refereed the match with Jack Charlton played. <laughs> and and then I got all. Did he get, uh, Did he give you any back cheek? No, 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 no. No, getting back to to. Uh, I done the cup final then in nineteen seventy two. Wow. And, and then uh, after that, I decided to retire. And then the uh, the FEI asked me would I uh, come in and help them with a. Uh, when visiting teams comes in and, and uh, look after them for a few days. And uh, I looked after, when Italy won the World Cup that time, I looked after them, I looked after Spain, I looked after Holland, I looked after wow. Denmark. And then uh, uh, Jack's first match was against uh, Wales, and I was looking after the Welsh team. Okay. So before the game, I went in to see Mick Bourne. Mick and I were very ah, close great, friends. Great Mick Bourne, the physio. Yeah. I was in to see Mick and the uh, Asked him for a loan of a pump, and Jack came over. And Jack recognised me. He said, "Tall when we met, like, how did we get on? We chatted each other." And he, when I left, he said to Mick, "What does he do?" And Mick said, "He does practically everything." And he said, "Who does that for us?" And Mick said, "I do." And Mick said, "That's silly." He said, "Why did you invite him in?" So Mick and rang me and asked. He said, uh, "Would you like to come along and join us?" So I said, "Yeah, okay." So from then on, we said to Mick had a partnership there and there. Uh, we grew on really, really well together. But I was about to say Jack was tremendous. Yeah. He was absolutely brilliant. And there's a thing, that photo, that famous photograph you mentioned earlier, you and the Pope, and Jack made sure that no no one pushed you out of the way. Because exactly, yeah. You're, you're, but there's a, there's a significant difference in height between the two of you. No, no, there wasn't. No, no. Okay. I tell you what happened. I, I was standing on a, a stairs. Okay, okay. And he, he was standing on another okay. stairs behind me, Ready resting okay. on me. And he was resting on me shoulders, like And uh, then he pushed me forward. And, uh, and did, you ever, did, you ever, did you ever see Jack lose his temper or get angry? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, there's not, oh. I tell you this much. Oh, you, you always knew when he lost his temper, like to say. But, but he had, I, I'd say this much. I've never seen a man with the skills of man management that he had. Wow. I, I, absolutely. I, I, for instance, the, the way he got a, a group, remember this, when he joined those first, a lot of people, I'm talking about players now, didn't agree with, with his method of, yeah, of, yeah, of football. Yeah. But he convinced them, yeah. you either play my way or go home. Yeah, okay. Now, on top of that, he wasn't, he, he wasn't really rude about it or anything like that, yeah. but he convinced them. By, by the different coaching methods he told. But anyway, getting back then, on top of that, he made it a family affair in so much that we say, in the old days, when they come in under other management, if you were born in Dublin, you could go straight home to your parents and just turn up for training and all that. Okay. But when he came along, he said, no. No, he said, when you turn up the first day, right. that Sunday, you go to see your parents. Okay. And, but you leave your bag in the hotel okay. and you come back down that night and stay with the rest of them. And then we say, after training on Monday, we'd go uptown and we'd go uh, uh, different places and different lads might do a bit of shopping or so. Yeah, go to pictures or other place, Newger. But on top of that then, on Monday night then, we go to the cinema yeah. and after the cinema, straight back, and there was a pub called the Hill 16 up and around me, Summer Hill. Yeah, no, well, yeah. And we go in there then, and there was a few drinks, only a few. Yeah. And then uh, we backed 
to the hotel and then it was heads down for training and the lads they would really train and they, they thought they'd never be never picked for the next match they all loved coming back because yeah. it was all a big happy family now we have to say this in yeah. fairness to Mick Bourne here yeah. Mick Bourne and myself now we say the day after a match or so we, we get together and go out ramble out to Hote and we'd have a chat and we'd say what about this and what about that and we used to we used to pretend to be arguing with each other in the room and the lads would be outside the pair of them were laughing <laughs> again the laughing again but the, the lads got a great kick out of the pair of us arguing but it, it was all pretense on our part like you see and, and with that Jack then used to torment the pair of us and uh, Jack could get Mick going great and uh, he torment Mick and Mick lose his temper like and, uh, and then there was, that, that was more fun but everything was Everything was for fun, like, and you know, it was all great laughter. Charlie O'Leary, and we'll come back to Charlie a bit later in the programme. And on today with Claire Byrne, the Mother and Baby Institutions Payment Scheme Bill. Now, the government calls it the largest initiative of its kind for survivors of mother and baby homes and related institutions. But campaigners say 40% of survivors have been excluded from a new compensation scheme, which comes before the doll this evening. Organisations like the Clan Project say the €800 million Euro plan is flawed, not only because it excludes so many, but it also denies health care to two-thirds of people. I'm joined by Mary Harney, a survivor of Besborough Mother and Baby Home in Cork. Mary, good morning to you. Thank you for joining us. Good morning, Claire. Now, I said that uh, organisations like the Clon Project say that the bill in its current form will exclude 40% of survivors. Will you explain to people why that is so? Well, there doesn't appear to be any logical reason why uh, these groups are excluded um, except that uh, Mr O'Gorman has based his uh, redress scheme on the reports of the Commission of Investigation into Mother and Baby Homes, and that has already deem- been deemed by a judicial review to be flawed, and I believe it's a cost-cutting exercise. Tell us who uh, makes up that 40%. Well, um, the anybody that was in a home for six months, a child born in a, an institution and stayed for six months is excluded. Um, people who were fostered or boarded out, often illegally, they're excluded. Um, the homes that weren't included in the investigation of the commission, people from there are excluded. Um, And it's just um, a farce that those exclusions are even in the scheme at all. Now, you mentioned uh, people who were boarded out um, or fostered out. You got access to new records of your own, didn't you, Mary? And you you got some insight into what happened to you when you were fostered out. That's correct. Um, Yes, in January, I got my uh, files from the Adoption Authority of Ireland. And what that did was it it validated my information that I had already been given from neighbours in the area in the place I was fostered out. Um, And it validated my story about the fact that I had been neglected 
and that I had been the subject of a court um, order and that uh, the person who fostered me was the defendant in that court order. But what the new documents gave me was unredacted uh, letters that had been written from the foster, between the foster mother and the um, adoption authorities. And so it gave a much clearer picture of what actually happened and the lies that were told to the social workers at the time and to the um, uh, and to the authorities. But what it clearly shows is that I was neglected, and because of the neglect and the type of neglect I suffered, I was taken by the uh, Prevention of Cruelty to Children officer, and I was um, incarcerated in an industrial school for 12 years because of the neglect I suffered in the foster home. What age were you when you were taken out of that situation? I was just going on five. So at five you were taken out and put into the industrial school? Yes. For a period of 12 years. And this is the first time, last month was the first time that you saw any official record of that? Um, I already had the records of my time in the industrial school because I've been doing research on my own for about 50 years. But what I did uh, find the first time I knew that how many lies had been told about me and the first time that I realized that a social worker from the Adoption Authority had actually come down from Dublin to find out what was going on with me. And she states quite clearly in her correspondence that nobody had visited that foster home to check on me in the two and a half years I was there. And you were only a baby, so a really. a lot of new... I was a baby and a lot of new information like that backs up the stories that the neighbours told me. Mary Harney there and Claire also spoke to Catherine Connolly, independent TD for Galway West. Going back to the people who are excluded from this bill, which is coming before the Dáil later today, a significant number of survivors, have, as we have been saying, they won't be eligible for redress under this scheme. Yeah, clear around law of law elevrija, and some Bridget states. Ironic that we're um, talking about a scheme to make redress for mothers that utterly fails to meet the standards of human rights. In relation to your specific question, the exclusion is simply arbitrary. If we look at the bill that's excluding all children under six months, if they spent less time they will be entitled to no payment. The justification for that by the minister is that they didn't suffer. They were too young to know what was happening. And so, with a stroke of a pen, he has ignored psychology, psychotherapy. He has ignored that it's an arbitrary dividing line and given no other justification. To me, it's a cost exercise to save money, nothing else. Yeah, we have a, 
a response on all of this from the department. They say there are no quick or easy solutions available in terms of moving forward from Ireland's painful legacy of mother and baby county home institutions. Now, it's a lengthy statement, but I just want to go to the, the main points. They talk about the exclusions and they say it doesn't mean that harm and mistreatment associated with time spent in an institution is not recognised, but rather that the applicant doesn't bear a burden of proof in relation to bringing forth evidence of any such harm or mistreatment. Do you accept, Catherine, that this is a very difficult scheme to get right? I don't actually. And it's just difficult because there's an echo back, so forgive me. But I don't... We've had many, many um, schemes before this that we should have learned from. I don't accept it's difficult anymore. We have clear obligations under national and international human rights legislation. And we have to learn and you see, this has been going on. If we go, if I very briefly, from 2012, when Catherine Corliss began her work, to 2023, with the, uh, the report in the meantime, and so many interim reports and so on, and so we've had ample time to learn. We've had a consultation process uh, carried out by a private company, Oak, and they set out clearly what survivors wanted. The government said they listened. What did they do after they listened? They made a scheme that's exclusive, that has a five-year cut-off point, ignored people or children who were boarded out, ignored the, the submissions made by the mixed-race organisation, ignored fundamental principles of human rights that the uh, Human Rights Equality Commission specifically asked to be included in the legislation and have just arbitrary cut-off points. One has to look at that and say, what's going on? And when I look at the interdepartmental report, it's clear that they were given a role, a cost-cutting, to keep the price to a minimum or the cost to a minimum. Okay, I'll come back to Mary and we'll see, can we sort out that echo, uh, Catherine, that you're hearing there. Mary, the other issue with this is that people who receive redress under the scheme, they're also going to have to sign a waiver saying that they won't Mm -hmm. take any future legal action against the state. Now, what do you say about that? Uh, That is a disgrace. But more than that, um, it breaches our constitutional rights and our rights under human rights uh, laws that uh, Catherine has already mentioned. I and another colleague of mine um, made a submission to the UN Human Rights Commission in Geneva last uh, July um, on this issue. And um, the uh, UN uh, rightly so condemned it and the minister has completely ignored it and gone ahead anyway. And this uh, shows you the, uh, the, the cold-hearted and downright um, ignoring every human rights law that's out there on our rights. And, you know, the UN, the uh, Committee on Torture, um, the Special Rapporteurs have all written to the Irish government on these issues. And they obviously have completely disregarded um, a transitional justice model. Catherine, coming back to you, and I think we've sorted out that uh, line now. Yes. The fundamental point here 
is, is it not, that the government is basing its development of policy in relation to redress on the Commission's final report. Is that where the problem lies? I think that's a huge part of it, Claire. And while they say they've gone further than the recommendations in that report, they haven't really. And that's a report, certainly the conclusions that have been discredited and an amended, an appendage put onto that report when it was put in the library here in the Dáil. And that's certainly a part of it. But, if you know, I think what captures it for me is the letter that was sent by the various psychologists and therapists way back in November 21. And it's a long letter. I'm not going to read it out. But they point out the, the trauma and the complexity of trauma from a very young age. And it includes separation from the primary caregiver. And that separation and breaking of bonding has been utterly ignored. And and rather naively, and I say that tongue-in-cheek, these therapists came forward to say that they would hope to influence policy. Some hope. That was some hope. That was November 21. And here we are in 23 and we still have this, the exclusion of anybody under six months, not to mention other exclusions like I've already referred to. And Claire asked Catherine about forced labour on these women. There's another issue as well, which I think people will find surprising. And this again from Clon saying that Forced unpaid labour of girls and women in mother and baby homes was generally work which they would have had to do if they were living at home. That came from the Commission of Investigations findings. That's right. So the scheme is going to um, exclude the, 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 a work payment for those people on those grounds. That's correct. It's un- unbelievable. And, because, and that's directly from the Commission's report. A commission, mind you, that put in a caveat to say the evidence of those who came forward and gave it in a voluntary capacity was contaminated. Mm -hmm. Remember that. And yet the government is acting on a report where no value was put on what was in effect forced labour. And that's been said by numerous human rights organisations that they said it was the same same work that would have been done at home. Mary, can you give me your uh, take on that, that, that you wouldn't be entitled to a work payment because you would have been doing that work at home or if you were brought up on a farm, you would be doing similar work? My mother uh, told me that she was forced to cut the grass with scissors uh, when she broke rules and that the women did all the heavy-duty work that paid labourers would normally have had to do, um, especially in the farms. This was... these. Uh, work placements. Imagine pregnant women out there doing the work of uh, farm labourers that were normally male farm labourers and to be uh, told that they lied. And when I saw that, um, you know, uh, that in the uh, commission's report um, where they uh, say that basically they're saying the women lied about these um, work um, jobs that they had to do. And again, this is ignoring the testimony of thousands of women who were in those homes. This bill, um, where we started, going back to where we started, Catherine, comes before the Dáil this evening. 
What do you want the government and the minister to do at this stage? Myself and my colleagues have a number of amendments in, in relation to the specific issues I've mentioned. If the government had any sense to take those amendments on board, but I have no faith that they're going to do that, unfortunately. I would like to be positive, but my experience tells me to date that there's no basis for that optimism. And I, I really, what really upsets me is this was our time to learn and I've mentioned some oh, since 2012 onwards, starting with Catherine Corliss and the various reports, various ministers telling survivors that they had learned, that they were listening, that it was going to be survivor-centred and survivor-led. And yet the opposite has occurred. And that's really what's upsetting about this. Catherine Connolly and Mary Harney on Today with Claire Byrne. And back to that conversation between Joe Duffy and Charlie O'Leary, kit man for the golden time of Irish soccer in Italia 90. Joe asked Charlie about Packy Bonner. Packy was answering me there just before your show. Oh, great, great. Packy rang me there about five to one there. And, uh, but but Packy, uh, Packy's penalty save, and yeah. then on top of that, uh, David O'Leary's penalty. Yeah. And uh, the, the, on, on that... To, to know everything, everything about everything about that particular trip was lovely. We had meeting the Pope, and then we the 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 the, the, the penalty shoot out, and then uh, I thought we were terrible unlucky in the match itself yeah, against yeah, Italy, yeah. like yeah, 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 it's and and then you know, and, and uh, it was a marvelous time to be to be with the Irish team, and we could do it now, like with the the country needs something no, like that to, to boost them up, like, you see? Absolutely. Because you, you only need to look at the, the streets around. I, I remember a, a lovely story. There was a friend of mine, and he was a, his job was going around uh, the, the, all over Ireland uh, mm-hmm. as a salesman, like. And he was in a little village down in Leitham. And as he walked in, he was talking to the man behind the counter, and this old lady came in. And it was the time we played in North of Ireland at a one o'clock kickoff, and she ran in. And she said, "Will you two bitches stop talking?" She said, "I'm in the hurry home to see the match on television." Right. And that was in a little village down in Leitrim, and there was an old lady in the hurry home to see it. Like brilliant! I mean, all that. Everybody, thing, everybody, yeah. everybody, yeah. everybody, everybody. And are you still in touch with many of the players, Charlie? Are they in touch with you? Oh yeah. Well, I, I, it, it seems. I'd say today sometime Mick McCarthy will ring me. He only rang me two weeks ago because well to check on me age because Mick, <laughs> it's my birthday is the fourth and his is on the seventh. Oh, very good. And he, he just rang me there the, 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 about two weeks ago before he got the job on Blackpool, like I say. Of course, yeah. And the, the, then I just said, Paul McGrath was up with me last week. Oh, was he brilliant? He, well, I, actually, he, he rang to say that he was, uh, see, he's living in Enniscourt, you know. Yeah, yeah. And he rang to say that they were on the way up on other business, was a long oh. way to call in because he's called in pretty regularly. Oh, well done, well done. So he, he spent over half an hour with me, maybe an hour, maybe. And have you got? Do you mind me asking, you, Charlie? Have you got memorabilia in the house? Do you have photographs I, I, and jerseys? I took the photographs and all that. Yeah. I wouldn't have. No, I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have the like the likes of jerseys or so. Okay. Other people. Have, I've given them all the various bits of charity. Like, oh, have you, know, you well right? done? Yeah. I know. Well, you'll always get. There's always. The very genuine cases of people yeah. who came along and the raffles and all that. I, I gave many stuff to, uh, to various charities. Like, but, uh, but when, when, when we knocked out Romania 
Yeah. And that incredible night, Packy saved Dave's yeah. uh, penalty. Um, did you, well, what did Jack say to you immediately afterwards? No, just no. Just as a, if you see the old films, yeah. you see Jack with his finger nearly his mouth like he's biting his tongue. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. finger like. And uh, you can't see me. I'm, he's on a step and I'm down a bit. Okay. And, and uh, as, uh, as David O'Leary is walking up to take the penalty, yeah. He's only walking up to take the penalty. Right. Jack says, I wonder what they're saying in Dublin tonight. I wonder what they're doing in Dublin tonight. Well, in Ireland, we were all holding our breath. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But did you, you see, you, you wouldn't have known uh, immediately, within an hour of that match, yeah. of the results, yeah. Charlie, yeah. O'Connell Street was yeah. mayhem. And within an hour of that match, Charlie, because yeah. I was in O'Connell Street, there was fellas on O'Connell Bridge, yeah. probably from the East Wall, yeah, sure. they were selling T-shirts with the result on it. <laughs> I love it. And there was fellas in O'Connell Street who were dancing semi-naked. In, you remember the floozy in the jacuzzi? Yeah, I do, I do, I do, yeah, yeah. They were dancing semi-naked in the floozy in the jacuzzi yeah, celebrating yeah. and half of them were, arrest- were arrested. <laughs> I had to had to explain to their mammies later on that night why they were arrested. But anyway, it was an incredible atmosphere in the country. Right. Yeah. But you 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 would have missed that. But you got that when you came home, didn't you? The welcome. Oh, it was wonderful. Yeah, uh, unbelievable. Yeah, that was marvelous. I remember Jack saying he thought somebody that when when the bus was coming up O'Connell oh. Street, he thought oh, him and well, him and Packy were nearly sick. They were yeah. they, they were really really them two men. I never forgot it. They were really white with with fright. Yeah. They, they they pleaded with the driver to go slow, go slow, yeah. please. And he was, was he terrible. was going as slow as he could. But they but the uh, because it they thought someone was gonna be killed. Yes. Such was the hysteria in the city. It's incredible. Yeah. And John Aldridge called Joe to wish Charlie a happy birthday. John Aldridge. Oh, good afternoon. Great, great to hear from you. You want, you want to wish um, Charlie O'Leary yeah. happy... You know what age yeah, he is, John? I know he's 99. Incredible. Really yeah. What do you and want you to know say? What? He still looks younger than me as ever. <laughs> what, do you say, what do you want to say about this great man? I, I love Charlie. We all love Charlie. He's part... He's part of the squad. He's, he was part of the band. So he's part of everything. Uh, but I blame him for getting me in that that mix up in the sideline in the against Mexico. I think it was your fault, Charlie. You didn't tell anyone. <laughs> this, this is when this is when Jack started fighting with the referee. <laughs> when, when, when Jack when Jack got fined twelve and a half thousand dollars and he, he had kittens, <laughs> oh, he went mad. He did. And Charlie, uh, Charlie, how are you, Charlie? Right, grand, lovely, John, lovely. Uh, I've seen some pictures of you today on uh, on the social media, and you you look brilliant, pal. Absolutely brilliant. Uh, he's great. He's a great. He's, he's ninety nine, as you say, John, and he's still hale and hearty, and he's still on he's still on committees in the FAI. Would you believe that, John? Well, I tell you what, there's none better than experience, and uh, he's the man. He's the man. He's a great kit man, and he he, he loved the laugh. We used to have a, a take take the proverbial out, but he always give it back. He got it. He always got his digs in, and um, he was very well thought of amongst the lads. We loved him absolutely, and still do. Yeah, brilliant, and that's that's evidenced by the number of players who were contact. John, listen, listen to George Hamilton, um, Italia ninety. Remember this commentary. It's coming up. It's about two minutes long. Mm-hmm. You see. Char- Stepping forward to assume the task, David O'Leary of Arsenal, in his 52nd international appearance, 
David O'Leary is entrusted with the responsibility of taking the penalty that could send Ireland into the quarterfinals of the World Cup. You remember this, this Charlie? This kick can decide it all. The nation holds its breath. Yes, we're there! Good God. Good God. Did you ever, Charlie, did you ever hear a roar like that? <laughs> no, lovely. It's no, incredible. Well, well, I can still hear it. <laughs> Good times. Happy birthday to Charlie O'Leary on the live line with Joe Duffy. And on today with Claire Byrne, the question was, is it ever OK to have your dog sleeping on your bed? Brian O'Connell was talking to some dog owners in Ballincollig, Cork. My dog sleeps in his own bed in my room. In your room? Yeah. Why doesn't he sleep in his own bed in a different room? Because he's spoilt. <laughs> <laughs> so he's quite attached to you, obviously. Yeah, but like he doesn't have separation anxiety or any of them sort of things. He's very, you know, he can be left, like there's no big deals. But no, he does sleep in my room. And how about yourself? It's even worse. Um, oh no, go on. <laughs> <laughs> she sleeps between me and my husband in the bed. <laughs> we actually had to upgrade our bed from like a king to a super king so that we'd all have more space. <laughs> She should be going on for all husband to end up in the box room the way this is going. <laughs> he kind of did when the child came along. Then. <laughs> How did, what's, what's your dog's name? This is Izzy. How did Izzy end up in the bed? Um, so it started like the first few nights she was downstairs and uh-huh. then it progressed to being in the bed on the ground in her room and she'd just wake up at night and be like all around the room and wake us up until you actually pulled her up. So... Yeah, now she just thinks that's her bed and there's no way around it. <laughs> I think if we were to get another dog, <laughs> we'd be like, no, you, sl- you stay downstairs. How many um, is your child? She's 14 months. 14 months. Is yeah. she in the bed with you as well? She actually doesn't really like coming in. She's very independent. She likes her own space. <laughs> yeah. So the child isn't in the bed, but the dog is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now we have two outside dogs that sleep in kennels as well. So she, but she has become, like, she was like her first child. I think, like, we treat her very differently to the other dogs. She's higher expectations of us. Where does the dog sleep? In, indoors. In the bedroom? No. No, it's either in the landing or she's the kitchen below. She's beautiful. What type of dog is she? She's a Kerry Blue. Kerry Blue? Yeah. Beautiful dog. Were you quite strict in terms of this was her space to sleep, this is the family space? Totally, yeah. Does yeah. she have a bed? She has, yeah. Kind of a straw basket kind of type thing. Like, that's her protective area, I'd say you'd call it. Like. So at the end of the day, it's an animal. You know, it's just humans are humans, animals are in bedrooms are for humans, not for dogs. Though. So there's a pecking order in the house? There would be, yeah. obviously, yeah. yeah. Uh, you have two dogs? She's beautiful, a cocker spaniel and... And a golden, golden. retriever. Yeah. Can yeah. I ask, where do they sleep at night? Where do they sleep? In the house, hallway. In the hallway? Yes. Okay, so you're not one of these people that has them in the bed? No, oh yeah. gosh, no. Yeah. no. You know, they might come in early in the morning if it's time to go out or time to get up. The people now who have the dogs in the bed... To each their own, I suppose. Much and all as we love them and we treat them well, uh, part of the family and all that. But, you know, some some parts of the house are sacrosanct. They are dogs at the end they of are, the day. Yeah, I mean, they are. I know we all love our dogs, but they're not your children. No, no, no. And, um, you know, they're big boys to be sharing your space. And, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know. Do they share the bed to them? Uh, no, he's not inclined to share. Uh, <laughs> he likes his own space. Yeah. It's, it's a work in progress. Work in progress. Brian O'Connell there. Then Kathleen Murray, dog expert, spoke to Claire. Well, it's an incredibly individual thing. It's one of those 
six million dollar questions, the same as like, what do I feed my dog? Because everybody comes out with their own ideas, their own ideas of parenting and stuff. So it's a very individual thing. It also depends entirely on the dog, because if you've got um, a dog that doesn't shed hair, a small, cute dog or whatever, they're more inclined to be allowed into beds. Um, if you've got a larger dog that loses hair, sometimes people think, no, it's too much hassle, it's too much bother. Other people think it's fine, you know, um, they'll do it, they'll go along with it. But it really doesn't matter um, what you choose if you're happy with the situation, but there are rules that go with it. And if you think through the dog's head and you forget about the people's attitudes and things, because some of them are ill-informed and some of them are highly informed. But, you know, if you think through the dog's head, it makes it very simple. Dogs are social animals. They were never meant to be on their own and they wouldn't actually be on their own. If they go out, that's why they hunt in groups. That's why, you know, when they get into a field of sheep, they all join up and things because that's their their way. They like company. So your dog's first, um, uh, what would you say, um, preference would be to actually be as close to you for as long as they can, obviously, because you're company. At the end of the day, if there are other dogs there, then they'll lie with other dogs sometimes. It depends on how the dog's brought up. It depends on the dog's personality. Some dogs like to sleep alone. Some dogs like company. So, you know, it's a very individual thing. I have, um, a, I have a listener here who has a 40 kilogram Doberman who has slept on top of our bed since we got him and he's six and a half. But you, you're not telling me that there are any sort of behavioural issues with doing that. If you're happy with it as an owner, it's fine. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I know a lot of dogs who slept, who sleep in beds. I know a lot of dogs, who, who, a lot of people who wouldn't have the dog even in the house, let alone in the bed. You know, it's, they're very extreme, you know, um, but there are rules to it. So if you're going to have your dog in your bed, it's a good idea that the dog is relaxed before bed, that there's a winding down process because dogs settle a lot better, the same as children do when you read them a story at night and things like that. Same for dogs. If you take them maybe for a little walk or maybe you do certain things, where they're lying around having a sleep before they even go to bed so that they're chilled out a bit more. Um, and to invite the dog onto the bed, don't let the dog just walk into the room and hop up by themselves when they feel like it, because sometimes dogs can get the wrong idea in the wrong circumstances. And if a dog is um, a little more pushy than other dogs, then they may take it that it's their bed and not your bed, so you don't want that happening, you know? <laughs> you certainly <laughs> don't. And this, uh, this person or this family, they bought a super king-sized bed to accommodate... <laughs> I can't believe this. A basset hound. We've three other dogs, but they sleep downstairs. I wonder how the three other dogs feel about the basset hound who gets the super king bed. Kathleen Murray from Today with Claire Byrne. And that's it for Playback Daily. So mind yourself till next time.